Welcome to Word by Word Conversations with Writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Our guests this afternoon are the brothers Joe and David Henry talking about their biography, Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. Self-confessed Richard Pryor fans since they first saw him on TV in the early 70s, Joe is a singer-songwriter who broke into the business as a production associate for Spinal Tap, the iconic band that never really was and has penned songs for Madonna, Madeline Peru, and Roseanne Cash. A Grammy-winning record producer, he has created albums with Luden Wainwright III, Elvis Costello, Amy Mann, Mose Allison, Bonnie Raitt, and Hugh Laurie. Married since 1987 to Melanie Ciccione, the couple have two children and live in Southern California. David is an author, screenwriter, and video and broadcast producer who lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife and two children. David's most recent screenplay co-written with Archie Borders is Pleased to Meet Me, based on Starley Kind's radio story, Everyone Speaks, Elton John. Joe, David, I am pleased to welcome you to Word by Word. So I read your book. Very interesting way to do it. Uh, I imagine this took some, we're going to talk about this on the, as we record, but I imagine this took some time to figure out how to put it together. A couple of weekends. Yeah, Yeah, more than that. (laughs) When did you start working on the movie? Uh... 2001? Yeah. No, I read somebody was cast or talked about. No. Oh, we talked about all kind of people. I mean, but uh, as we were writing, you know, we were always thinking about, well, you know, how would this be fully realized? Right. And, you know, you start, you know, you know that anybody you talk to is going to say, wow, well, who's going to play Richard? You know, always tricky if you've got a character who is so physically identifiable mm-hmm. and, and resides in, in the minds of his admirers so profoundly you know how do you trick people into stop seeing uh, an actor as a poser that's right and the character you know the other thing is i went on last night and i pulled up lots of you know youtube clips and looked at old stuff including barbara walters of course famous Mm -hmm. and to watch him change you know the young man who was on ed sullivan i think or whichever it was first Mm -hmm. um was so different and i don't mean from after he got ill sure but along the way Mm-hmm. You could see his demons mm-hmm. were taking their toll. Definitely. Yeah. I'm not sure you could live like he lived and not, um, you know, when a decline begins, I think it's it's a, it's a seriously steep decline and, and rapid. You yeah. Know? Of course, it started quite young. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he, was, he, he was using a lot of things but when he was quite young, according yeah. to his, yeah. some people we talked to. It's kind of him. amazing how well he... And he's not the only one of that era. I just think yeah, Belushi must came have been to made mind of, and others, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah. just so, I mean, uh, it's sort of remarkably resilient considering once you learn, you know, what he was actually doing. You right. think, you know, you were, not only survived that but continued to be, you know, uh, incredibly creative and influential and, uh, you know, he did do a lot of really great work. He talked about, like on Barbara Walters, about how there was a time when he just couldn't work mm-hmm. and he was in love with the pipe or the bong, or whatever he was, he was calling it, and um, he was holed up for days, weeks, you know, year at a time, kind of thing, and that was his love, mm-hmm. and he couldn't leave it. He said, "Oh, I'll leave it," and five minutes later, he's back. Yeah. So, but the thing that I thought was so amazing about him, and that I didn't pick up in the book, is it's like there, you know, usually someone who comes up and rises all of a sudden, star-like, has a mentor who kind of takes them under their wing and guides them or such. And there were lots of different names 
in different times of his life mm-hmm. who did things, but it seemed almost like he happened to be the right guy at the right time who was representative of what people were looking for, and that was the choice. It was Bill Cosby or Richard Pryor? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might, uh, you know, I think Bob Dylan is a good analogy for that. You know, you can look back at Bob's career and not coincidentally in the same moment. I mean, you know, he sort of found his voice 1963, 64, mm-hmm. uh, at exactly the same time and in the same neighborhood of New York City right. that, that, that Richard did. Bill and you can look at Bob's work and say, you know, I know where this comes from. I can see the pieces he's assembling, but nobody assembled it this way before. Right. And there's nobody out in front leading him. Um, you know, he was a man out on a wire, and, and Richard was that too. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So, David, you are you the younger? No, I'm no, you're the older. I'm older. He's just in the music business. Nobody used to ever ask that. But yeah, the well, no, I mean, it's, it's one of those, you know, I've probably hat. been aware. <laughs> he wears a hat to cover it yeah. and make him look that way. Yeah. So, you were how old when you saw Richard Pryor first on TV in 73? Um, well, at that time, I was, uh, what, 14? If that, I mean, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, we saw him on TV before that. I remember seeing him on, on Ed Sullivan. Well, that's what you talk breath. about in your opening. Yeah, but we yeah. in the opening, you know, we, yeah. we talk about the time we set. We he was hosting the midnight special. Yeah. We set, yeah. set up the microphones, but of course, we already knew who he was by yeah, then. I think I was twelve, but we sort of reached this point of, in, you know, just real fast infatuation with him, and just right. that, that this is something special that Richard Pryor's hosting the the midnight special. So, from two guys from Akron, Ohio, mm-hmm. what on earth did you see in this? you know, ghetto, Peoria, Illinois kind of guy. I think... um, I mean, I'm asking you to be representative (laughs) of, you know, a much larger number of people than just the two of you there. Sure. I think think one thing he did at that point was talk about what black people were experiencing at the time, not in a way that was uh, so confrontational, like, you know... You people do this or that. I mean, the way Dick Gregory had another way of doing it. He mm-hmm. came before mm-hmm. him, who he really admired in a right. way of turning. But, but uh, uh, just a few years after that, or just another a year after that, I guess you know, he did his famous thing about when a black man is pulled over by a cop. Yeah, you know, the white guy, the white driver is, oh, hello, officer, glad to be of help. Here's right. the, you know, and the That's white right. and the black driver saying, I am reaching into my pocket for my license. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. and even though we don't, you know, we don't experience that. I think he he. He portrayed it in such a way where he was, where he was, you know, by embodying it that way, by by playing the character who's doing that. I think um, you know people identify with that, even though white drivers or white people in the audience, like you know, they may say that's I didn't know that happened, but he's portraying it in a way that you you identify with him because we're all in have been in situations where you know we feel threatened, we feel like we're being unfairly and accused of something. Feel that way. Pardon me. Teens, especially. Right, probably. right, and you and you understand that, and and you say, "Wow, so that's what it is." It wasn't just like citing, you know, major historical atrocities and things like that. He was showing us like daily life, and in a way that Joan Rivers did for Housewives, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or you know, she she said, "Richard does what I do for people who've really suffered." She goes, "You know, I I do this for like, you know, a suburban housewives with there, and he and he does kind of the same." He does, you know. She said, "Yeah, we have similar kind of things. We're like bringing this stuff out in the open. That you know, instead of like the happy, 
you know, satisfied housewife, you know, she'd make jokes that, I mean, things that she said in the early 60s, not to go off on a Joan Rivers tangent, Mm -hmm. but, you know, she'd talk about abortion in a way that just horrified people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, she'd say, you know, my friend Heidi, she's had 13 appendectomies, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, you know, that was, you know, she'd say, by the way, you know, she closed in her act at a club. She'd say, my name's Joan Rivers. And yes, I put out. And, Jack Lemon just she said Jack Lemon just screamed at her. He just thought that was horrible. <laughs> well, Jack Lemon was a different yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. character. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't point. mean to go off on a, a Joan no, no. Rivers, but I think that Richard Pryor did that not only that when he was even though he talked about things that clearly he was angry about and but he still had just sort of a sweetness about him and sort of a vulnerability that made you take his side. And he's the kind of person who, when he was in front of a mic on stage in the spotlight, people watched mm-hmm. and listened to and reacted. Yeah. He was charismatic that way. And, you know, I mean, I certainly felt what, what uh, David expressed, that, you know, he was sort of sharing an experience and we could take it in without feeling in, indicted, you know. And by the way, you know, we lived in Akron, Ohio, or near there when we first discovered Richard, but we're from North Carolina. Right. And, and there was certainly... And in Georgia. I mean, there certainly was... In fact, was, your publisher is from North Carolina, mm-hmm. too, yeah. A, a yes. wild coincidence if there's such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that I spent, uh, you know, my early teen years being very uh, embarrassed by my Southern heritage. You know, I don't think I got okay uh, with the fact that I was from the South until... And from North Carolina until I learned that Nina Simone and Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane were also from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, there's something that redeems this, you know. Because when we were out in the world by that point and, you know, uh, listening to music and reading and hearing people like Richard, um, I did feel indicted. You know, I, I felt indicted by my, by my heritage, you know, by implication. Um, I knew what the South meant to other people. Mm-hmm. I knew what it meant to me by the time I lived in the Midwest. You know, when I was coming of age, um, my Southern heritage was not something I was proud of. Mm-hmm. Well, because we we lived in Atlanta when Martin Luther King was killed. And Did we, you? The, mm-hmm. wow. He was killed and in Memphis, we, but of course his church yeah. was right. in Atlanta. His church was in right. Atlanta. It was like it was a dev- – and just you know, the attitudes. I mean you didn't really appreciate how different that was than other parts of the country. And maybe the other parts of the country were. I mean, this is a very big topic. It gets very. Yeah. It's yeah. not all that clear cut. Yeah. I mean, even but, Malcolm X said, "You know, s- stop talking about the South. If you're south of the Canadian border, yeah. you're south." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, now Akron, I know Dayton fairly well, but I don't mm-hmm. know Akron. Tell me what it. It's not a tire manufacturing town. What is it? It was in it fact. Was, it was. Yeah. Yes, that was. That was the. That was. Yes, that was the, the Firestone the, Country Club and the big okay. Goodyear blimp hanger and the. Yeah, it was still. Still that way. Yeah, when we yeah. lived there, it was. I don't know. I haven't been back there in a while. But One yeah. of the things, I was talking about earlier too about how there really wasn't a mentor who took him under their wing with one major exception because you just mentioned school. Mm-hmm. And that was the one woman who was in charge of the little theater group mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Peoria who he, you know, time and time again would mm-hmm. acknowledge and recognize and bring up on stage and and uh, even gave her his Emmy mm-hmm. after he won it for writing for Lily Tomlin. Right. And uh, then went and, of course, brought it back a few years later to <laughs> yeah. say, you know, people don't believe me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't show it. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, she was – she really opened up the door for him and he uh, always acknowledged that. And I think he uh, – Peoria was a show business town in a lot of ways. It was right on the vaudeville circuit between Chicago and St. Louis mm-hmm. and there were – a disproportionate number of theaters for a town that size. And his father had sung in vaudeville and there were after 
hours clubs and um but I think when she introduced him to theater, he came in you know, doing Rumpelstiltskin. Right. was the first thing he – and he was – I don't know. He had a – played a townsperson or something. But the guy who played the king missed a day. It was absent one day. So Richard had memorized everybody's part. He knew the whole play. And he's like, me, me. Yeah, I'll do the – I'll understudy. sit on the throne. Yeah, I'll yeah. sit on the throne. Yeah. And when the – according to Miss Whitaker, when the kid playing the king came back and saw what Richard was doing – he said he just backed off, just said, let him have it. Yeah. And he would make – teachers would make deals with him after that. But what I was going to say, I guess, about you know, his family's pool hall, and even though his father had sung in vaudeville, that's a little different than theater. Mm-hmm. And I think theater seemed a little he, – he probably thought to his father and uncles and stuff, theater would be a little prissy. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's something yeah. that he would – you know, he would sometimes just go – as much as he loved doing it, he would – I think felt obliged to go hang out in the pool hall and make Miss Whitaker come find him, and he knew that she would. And his uncle later said he was always, you know, he was glad she came and found him. But he had to, he had to live in both those worlds. Let's talk a little about about his family, which is certainly not the traditional uh, Beaver Cleaver kind of thing that you you know was on TV at the right. time. Well, he you know raised uh, in his grandmother's brothel. His mother was a prostitute. You know, his his grandfather owned a bar. Um, and from the time he was, you know, six years old, he was running drugs for Johns in the brothel and being abused in every way that a young person can be abused. Um, um, His father set him up in business, though, didn't he? Is mm-hmm. all reading? <laughs> right. As a pimp? Yeah. 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 Here's the girl. No, you take in the income. Mm-hmm. I guess and, it's like somebody giving you 40 acres and a mule in some way and uh, thinking, okay, you know, go establish yourself, young man. Yeah, but, but that who, that didn't last very long at all. He no, well, it. apparently the problem was is he didn't beat her. He didn't know how to beat a woman. Right. Yeah. And and people didn't think that was the right thing. He should know how to do that, I yeah. guess. Yeah. His father thought so, I guess. Wow. If you're going to do if you're going to be in this business, you have to He had yeah. a Tell me about Richard and what you know about and reading about him. He had such a difficulty in maintaining a relationship with a woman and he you know, would come back when he'd feel guilty, and then he'd leave again, and then he, there'd be somebody else. And you know, there, it was serial; just mm-hmm. it was well, addictive. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's a lot, uh, a lot behind that. You know, from the idea of him coming up in a way where women were not valued. So, at a certain point, you wonder how much are you going to invest in that relationship, really, as soon as it starts getting in the way of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And when you're somebody who's, you know, pursuing. Uh, incredibly ambitious creative path and then you know uh serving a demon of 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 substance at some point you know how much patience you're going to have for anybody else in your life that really wants uh expects something of you in return right now as you were creating this book there seemed to be i will say three parts or three ways of doing it and one is kind of a um an essay section Another is an interview section with mm-hmm. people who were important or the children of people who were important. And another is some excerpts of the material, which is why I can't have you read much from your book on the radio mm-hmm. because the excerpts from the material, we can't say sure. some of those right. words still. Sure. So it doesn't matter you know, what, uh, <laughs> what certain comedians, you know, Mr. Carlin at all would have said about it. Mm-hmm. But um, – You've done this in an interesting way because it's chronological or at least it follows a sort of a rough outline of, you know, here this came first, this came second, this came third, et cetera. 
But you begin the book, and I'm going to have you read because this is a safe section. Who'd like to read this? The one about where he's just a little teeny bit. In fact, I'll, I'll just read it here because I've Please. got it. Sir. You begin your book with an anecdote that includes the following words. A man is stumbling alone down the street, disoriented, arms raised, heading west. There is smoke rising from his hair and body. He looks familiar. Now that, if there is one moment in Richard Pryor's life that made him be front-page fodder, that's probably it. And that might be why we began there, though. I don't remember us talking about that consciously, though. As I thought of it after, I feel like, you know, we're sort of inviting people into a point of departure that everybody knows. Even mm-hmm. people who didn't follow his career, who weren't moved by his work, remember that story when it broke. So we're sort of just like, you know, letting the book fall open, as, you know, if you will, uh, in a moment that's familiar to everybody. And then we start, you know, walking towards that and away from it. You well, know? those who are not old enough or don't remember, who didn't pay attention at the time, you want, who wants to tell us about what happened and which version do you want to tell us? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd rather tell you. I'd rather tell you the real version, which okay. is that you know it, it was a suicide attempt, even though he didn't he didn't own that for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody talked about it as if it was an accident. You know, his crack pipe exploded. You know? Or rum. He you know. Support well, you use body, uh, yeah. um, use really high grade alcohol to to ignite a crack pipe. You know, either rum or uh, I didn't know brandy. Okay. Yeah. Um, and at a point when he had, you know, come back after having tried to stop and spent days and days consuming everything he had, you know, even his most secret stash, uh, and had nothing left to smoke, um, he became so demoralized that he he took the the alcohol that he had and poured it over his body and set fire to himself. And there were apparently, well, there were people who now say, you know, something like that was going to happen. Like his girl, off and on again girlfriend, Kathy McKee, said, Mm -hmm. you know, you see somebody in that situation – there's no way they're coming back from that. They're going to be dead or they're going to get help. And you know, she was one of several people who – I mean it's one of those stories where as time goes on, it seems like more and more people were present. It starts to – you know, his his longtime friend and trainer and bodyguard, Rashan Khan, he tells one version that he was there in the living room. Other times Richard just refers to my partner or a friend. Yeah, Jennifer Lee. So it's one of those kind of stories. As time goes on, it's it, it's you start to wonder where the truth really lies, yeah. and and who was there, who was talking to him. Jim Brown was there, but it it is beyond dispute from everybody we've talked to, or and everything's been and that what he talked, you know, wrote in his own memoir, that you know it was like a weeks long free base binge, mm-hmm. and he just you know such a point of despair whether he. Completely ran out of everything he had to smoke, which it sounds like it's true. But he also just Gave sort of – there's no other way out of yeah. this. There's yeah. no other way. And, right. Uh, so know. what brought him there? This is uh, – his. he was how old? 43 mm. about? He would have been 40 years old at yeah. 1980, okay. yeah. yeah. Just shy of his 40th birthday. All right. Well, um, you know, Paul, what, I mean, I'm sorry. But go ahead, Dave. No. Um, no, go ahead. I well, I was just going to say that at a certain point, you know, people have – Phrase in one way or another, you know, he had a void that could not be filled. Mm-hmm. He had a pain that could not be squelched. And, you know, he wouldn't be the first person, uh, certainly not the first great creative character to be self-medicating. Um, you know, he was a, he was a, an enormous fan of, of Charlie Parker's. And, and I think, you know, maybe because he recognized this wild gift and maybe also he recognized enough hurt 
you know, in Bird, that 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 was a kindred spirit. Mm-hmm. And he was also a person early on, even you know, in his early seventies, he would come out and just say, "I love cocaine." Yeah, I haven't. You know, oh yeah, <laughs> he was like, no, he was he a wasn't, user. He wasn't yeah, secretive yeah. about he was it. A user not as many a people, teen, but, so, yeah. but yeah, but he was also just at, at a certain point. He was. I mean, after a certain point, he always talked. He always talked very frankly about his cocaine addiction as if it were in the past. Mm-hmm. But there was a time early on where he just like, oh, I love cocaine. Yeah, he told Barbara Walters. Right. Yeah, I like to yeah, get sit yeah. around my friends and get high. As I like doing that. You know? I'm going to suggest to our <laughs> listeners that if they want to check something that kind of brings encapsulated, mm-hmm. Barbara Walters did a special which is on YouTube. You can mm-hmm. find it really easy. It's about 40 minutes long where she does different interviews with Pryor over different, you know, five, ten years apart mm-hmm. to, to close to the end of his life. And um, the stories he tells all sound true as he first tells it, but they change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my lawyer said to say that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things you write about in your book is how important truth was to Richard Pryor. Right. But the truth was uh, something which could be... Like all good comedians and all good, you know, we who rely Mm -hmm. on our writing techniques uh, do, you change it around. You don't let the facts facts get in the way of the truth. That's right. right. But also, you know, know, his drug use was almost the the, the one thing that he he was not completely honest about. I mean, he would talk about it on stage with seemingly – shocking candor. But Mm -hmm. he always, as David was just suggesting, at a point always talked about his – Addiction as if it was a thing of the past. Right. Like, man, you know, back when I used to do coke, yeah. uh, and, and he would and bear he, his soul, and mm-hmm. but always as if that demon had been laid to rest. Yeah, that and, was five, you know, that yeah. was five mm-hmm. weeks ago. Yeah, right. yeah like, yeah. wow, yeah. I've been clean and sober, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he wasn't, you know, hand on the Bible kind of truth that he told, but he would tell, like, emotional <laughs> truths or, uh, you know, things that are true about himself as a man or as a person that people, most people would shy away from divulging. Was yeah. he a spiritual person? He... I know he was raised in Catholic. He went to a Catholic school and then mm-hmm. got kicked out. Uh, his mother and grandmother, I guess, who was raising him, changed. Although she'd been raised a Catholic, she changed to Methodist, was it? Something. She went to a Baptist, Baptist church. And right. she, she she was also attended a Catholic church, and she enrolled him in Catholic school. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's that's the sole reason she did that. But he, he would talk about how she would sometimes drag him to the revival meetings. And right. How, well, that's where uh, he got Baptist some of his minister characters. tried to cast yeah. the demons yeah. out of that's him. Right. And, One of his famous uh, characters. Yeah. I'm not sure that he wasn't spiritual, but I don't think he um, – I, I use yeah. that word in contrast yeah. to religious. Right. Sure, sure, as as you must. Mm-hmm. Uh, he certainly wasn't a practicing uh, uh, princi- you know, disciplined religious uh, practitioner, I mean to yeah. say. As he got older, he talked yeah. more about spirituality and, mm-hmm. and God and, mm-hmm. and, and as he – the illness progressed yes. too, which is not uncommon, I guess. Mm-hmm. But he, but no, I don't. There's he would make jokes about a lot of jokes about religion, right? But he still, but he had several routines about Christ and things, mm-hmm. and he in his screenplay some very interesting, kind of startling images and some of the unproduced writings he did. But just like talking about his heart attack, you know, everybody gets religious um, when they think they're going to die. Yeah. You know, you put in an emergency call to God, no right. matter That's what right. your relationship with him might have been up to that moment. You know, As a screenwriter, one mm-hmm. of the things that um, you describe in the book when he's working on different s- screenplays and working for different um, TV shows is that he would say stuff in the, you know, the script writing room, you know, with the other people, mm-hmm. the other writers around. And they'd say, oh, that's great. That's great. But we can't say that. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was someone to 
to make it acceptable for the mm-hmm. wider audience, mm-hmm. the non, you know, somebody who had had four drinks and was sitting out there and enjoying <laughs> yeah. the show, and, right. you know, in the smoky darkness. So, um, and one of the stories you tell is with Mel Brooks and the, uh, did that feud that developed over him not getting the part that was done by Cleveland Little ever get over as far as Pryor was concerned? I don't think he ever got over the hurt of it. Yeah. He was like, uh, the when Mel Brooks brought him this on. This is Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles, exactly. And from a few years earlier when he sort of exiled himself in Berkeley for two years, mm-hmm. just with a typewriter. With Huey, one of the things the, he wrote yeah. was a um, short, I don't think it was a feature-length screenplay, but it was about a black sheriff in the Old West, and it was called Tex X. Mm-hmm. And I know he... That was kind of a starting point for what he brought to Blazing Saddles, mm-hmm. and he and Mel Brooks freely acknowledges that he contributed some of the best parts of that script. And well, the Mel most Brooks memorable parts, him, yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and Mel Brooks wanted him to play it, but did and and I guess Richard Pryor felt he didn't stand up to the studio as much, you know, to the degree that he had led him to believe he would, mm-hmm. that he believed in him so much for this part, and. Richard Pryor thought he was going to be playing that part when he wrote it, and, yeah, and well, only found out from Cleavon Little, not from that's right. Mel Brooks. Right? Cleavon's, hey, I just got this part I in just this, got new, this part. Yeah, you're gonna, it's going to be great. I'm going to play this black sheriff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, it's interesting how you present that because there's a style that the two of you, and I don't know which of you mm-hmm. brought it, or maybe both of you, you know, worked together closely before, where there's a kind of a um, journalistic. Bent. In other words, you get to a point where you could make a judgment about something, and then instead of that, you just present the facts, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So you talk about, for instance, uh, how Mel Brooks, there's that wonderful scene involving the beans and the results mm-hmm. from that around the campfire, and mm-hmm. the wonderful scene where, you know, Mongo comes in and hits the horse and mm-hmm. it goes down mm-hmm. and such, and all, all kinds of other memorable scenes, all of which are prior, because mm-hmm. we see them in some of his earlier routines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, Mel Brooks says, you know, you say that Pryor got upset because he wasn't fighting for the studio. But what Brooks says was, well, you don't fight that fight. You just make the movie the way you want to make it. Mm -hmm. It's not worth, you know, all Mm -hmm. that ahead of time squabble. Mm -hmm. Right. So we were left to judge. We're left to judge. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, you know, we're not exactly sure. Right. We we present what we know of that, a very interesting and, uh, you know, a very telling, you know, divergent, two very divergent accounts. Right. And we're not sure. And Mel Brooks, I think, was right. You know, you tell the studio you're going to do all the things they want you to do and then go ahead and do whatever you want. No, but I guess else. as far as casting the maybe that maybe casting the lead is a little too blatant. Yeah, <laughs> it's too little uh, blatant. Of yeah, a, they might want to know that. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think. But what you're he's talking like, yeah, about, about, about whether or not we, you know um, – Analyze uh, information to some kind of conclusion. You know, as we say in the beginning, you know, we're not, you know, we're not pretending uh, journalistic objectivity. Um, and at a certain point, you know, we we own that our point of view is 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 just that. Um, and at a certain point, um, we can't know because um, you weren't there. Yeah, we weren't there. Right. And 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 in fact, it's it's really beside the point. You know, just to, to some degree. Um, you know what the truth of that was. You mm-hmm. know, uh, we know what it meant to Richard, uh, and that's what was really germane. I think yeah. is that once again, you know, he felt like um, you know he'd been set aside in that in you know in that regard. 
But you makes me wonder, for instance, there were so, you know, if you say you had Judy Garland on the set and she was going to play some character and then you saw how she was, would you cast her for something where an entire movie depended on her mm-hmm. after she was really into the the you know the bottle of mm-hmm. the yes yeah, it's a good it's a good no, question it's not that those that their concerns were unfounded yeah but this was a big enough movie and he was untested you know as a, a as a lead player right that but Richard always felt that that Mel Brooks I think had the ability to keep him in that role mm-hmm. to give him that role and and caved I think I don't we don't want to say yes that's what Mel Brooks did sure you know because right. we don't. We don't know. Have a great deal of admiration for Mel Brooks, and you know, but we know they're they both did what they, you know, Mel Brooks obviously did what he thought he had to do to get his movie made, right, and right. and Richard Pryor was certainly hurt by it. We know both of those are true. But now there's a lot of discussion on the internet about which of Richard Pryor's movies are the worst and which are the best. Mm-hmm. Do you have any opinions on either side? Absolutely. Let's say best. Let's <laughs> okay, go that side. That's more fun. Well, we can take the. Uh, his absolute best film was his concert film from 1979, okay. Live yes. in Concert. Yes. But we'll set yeah, that left we'll set because that was him doing what he did best. At, and I think that's at his the way zenith. many yeah, people saw him as stand up because what he presented on the TV shows was mm-hmm. not that. Right. It wasn't as raw. Right. But you see that particular film and, you know, there's never really been anything to match it, you mm-hmm. know, just one man alone with a microphone on the mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a stool and a glass of water. Yeah. And in the course of an hour and 10 minutes, he talks about, you know, love, God, death, sex, you know, uh, his mortality, race, you know, his Shooting upbringing. Up his wife's car, um, having a heart attack. It's unbelievable, yeah. Yeah. you know, how much he, you know, he gives back from from his, in, you know, total um, summation of, of life to that moment. There's really nothing like it. This is Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guests are the brothers Joe and David Henry, talking about their biography, Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. I just asked Joe and David what their favorite Richard Pryor films are, so stay tuned to KRCB-FM to hear their replies. But but as far as a movie where he's uh, acting with somebody else's uh, script, which is always... Uh, a problem, as we've talked uh, a lot about, because I mean, beyond the uh, the the problem that you just highlighted, just the idea that he has to follow somebody else's rhythm, mm-hmm. that he's not free to expound and improvise like he always did. You know, he's got to read something, and as soon as he starts to get into a groove, it throws off another actor, and somebody calls cut. We got to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Gene Wilder talks about the first time he did a scene with Pryor, and yeah. you know, Pryor did the first line straight, and he yeah. did his line, and then. The, the second line that prior had nothing to do with the script. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, so he says, well, what do I do? Do I try to think up something, you know, fast and quick and witty or just go with it? <laughs> mm-hmm. So fortunately, yeah. he just went with it. But as far as him playing a role in someone's film, mm-hmm. um, my personal favorite is, is, is Blue Collar, uh, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. Paul Schrader mm-hmm. uh, screenplay with, with Harvey Keitel as a co-star. And Yapa yeah, Koto. Uh, Yes, three yes. co-stars, yes. Yeah. and right. Paul Schrader had told each of them that they were the star of the movie. That's right, yeah. and that fueled a lot of the the contention, the, the, the dynamic the, tension, a lot of yes. the a lot of the chaos on the set, but also really fueled the drama. 
It's really funny for him to think he needed to fuel that drama. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He should have talked to a few people. Yeah, well, it was his first film he directed. But he's really beautifully, uh, you know, I mean, Richard is so uh, deep and and there's a real sensitivity to his performance in that film. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I see it and I get a glimpse of, you know, there was something really there to be realized had he dedicated himself to that. He's a real actor. You know, know, had he made choices, you know... uh, to take on good material rather than, well, you know, this is no good, and he'd you know do films and then apologize to his audience for it when he's out on the, uh, you know, on the campaign trail on behalf mm-hmm. of the movie. You know, even Silver Streak, he apologized to his audience. He said, you know, I know y'all like that movie, but I saw it, and you know, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I did it for the money. I promise I won't do it again. Um, you know, but had he been making choices, you know, based on, you know, things that creatively. Uh, served him and 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 that he felt connected to, uh, I think there was really something there to be realized that I don't think ever or clearly never was. I think he made several good films in the early seventies where they weren't really comedies. And we say in what uh, we quote Walter Mosley or paraphrase Walter the novelist Walter Mosley right. saying Richard Pryor wasn't joking, and you know at his best he never told jokes. He played characters and he wasn't making fun of them. I mean necessarily. I mean he wasn't lampooning them really he became these characters and there were things that were very hilarious about them but they were in earnest mm-hmm. and he wasn't and but when he was cast in comedies it's sort of like he had to play the buffoon and it just didn't quite work he was playing it for broad laughs right but when he played a dramatic role it was like joe brings often brings up the example of uh jackie gleason and the hustler or something you see how you know how he can really to, I think you have to be really smart to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. I think you have to know a lot about people. To be people, a great one. To be yeah. a really, I mean, somebody like Jackie Gleason or Richard Pryor or or Bill Cosby or um, uh, W. C. Fields or W. C. Fields, and yeah, I think you, I think Richard Pryor, his best stuff, even as a stand-up, were you know when he was really getting into a character, you know, their their foibles and their you know. A, a, shortcomings or their desperate situations and he made several films in the early 70s like i say i always get i always i always mix up the title big go long and the all traveling yeah, all-star traveling motor all-star. kings right. barnstorming baseball team. Yeah. and his character was very funny but he wasn't necessarily playing it for laughs he was played a, a black baseball player trying to pass as any other ethnicity to get mm-hmm. into the major mm-hmm. leagues and got trouble. yeah and so i remember the opening line was something about if you're a white baseball player you just have to show up, but if you're a black baseball player, you really have to play well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And he made a. I, th- I thought he was great in a in a movie he did. He Billy D. Williams made as many movies as um, he and Gene Wilder did. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, which was interesting. He, they weren't buddy movies. Yeah, you know, they weren't you know, equal billing necessarily, or they weren't. But he had one of the ones he did with Billy D. Williams called Hit mm-hmm. by Sidney Fury. I think was that's the one where he dies fairly soon in the film. Is that the, no? That's no. not the one where he dies. he's he's recruited by Billy D. Williams, who's a cop whose daughter I think has been died from an overdose, and he's recruiting and other people. End up going to Europe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and you can tell that he and he and Billy D. Williams in this, you know, he's he's a tragic character. His wife was killed mm-hmm. by a drug dealer or mm-hmm. something during a robbery, but. And he's you know very wounded, but as he's going on this, he joins this sort of you know uh, you know magnificent seven assemblage of people to right. go after these g- drug kingpins right. in Europe. He um, you know his character really starts to blossom, and he and you can tell he and Billy D. Williams are really getting into it mm-hmm. off script and things too. And he was given some room to actually do what he wanted to do. I I think they were just able to edit you know 
pull back. Still let him do that, but still, it was a little bit of a sprawling movie. I'll admit they yes. didn't keep it to it. Yes. It was like an hour and a half of characters set up and situation development, and then twenty minutes of action. But and everybody went to see the action because right, right, because that's action. how it was built. It was right. built as an action movie. Right. But but I thought his performance in that was just great. He just he did some really wonderful things in that movie. One of the things I did, and maybe you've done the same thing, is looking at a lot of clips, you know, over a couple hours, and they're all short, you know, mm. five, six minutes. Um, it's almost how he used the the talk show as a confessional mm. to explain what was going on with his life. Like there was that incident where he lost 20 pounds for a movie role, yeah, quote, unquote. Right, right. And then uh, the issue of AIDS came up because that was, that was when it was. Yeah. And they had people would ask him, well, you have been a, you know, hardcore intravenous drug. Oh, well, I occasionally did, might have sometime in the past. Yeah, I guess I could have mm. kind of mm. answer. And, um, what he was trying to say, I think, in those interviews was he wasn't getting it from gay sex. Right. Would you agree? Yes. I, that, I think he was very – yeah. That's clearly what, – that's what prompted him to go on The Tonight Show that one time. Mm-hmm. I mean he was, he was ill. He was yeah. losing weight. And when there was some gossip column speculation or something that it was AIDS, he felt – he felt like he had to deny that publicly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In fact, he lambasts the people who would write such a thing mm-hmm. yeah, without checking their facts first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The other time, of course, where um, – and then we had the burning incident, which mm-hmm. we, we've talked mm-hmm. about. But when he was diagnosed with MS, um, he didn't talk about that. No. He kept that secret kept for that as long as – He kept that secret for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, but it showed. I mean, pe- but people, I think, you know, I'd look at him and say, oh, well, he's – you know, it's – He's high on something. Or something. Sure. Yeah. Well, you wonder whether that's just, um, you know, and, and it is speculation, of course, but, you know, whether he was just in denial himself that this might really be spelling the end of his creative work life mm-hmm. or whether he was just afraid that everybody else thought so. And would run. Yeah. yeah. And that mm-hmm. that'd be the end of, of, of any invitation to do anything. And that every time anybody saw him coming, it would be with that, that look on their faces, you know, like, like, like when they visit you in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, do I want to be that, you know, am I that guy now? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't work anymore. I'm just the guy that people come to, to pay respects to. and um, Sitting in a wheelchair or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. With a shawl yeah. on mm-hmm. the front porch. What, which is what he was when I met him. Yeah. You know, he was, at, you know, by the point time I was ever in his company and it was, you know, maybe four or five times I visited him him and his home uh, in, you know, in the Valley in Los Angeles, uh, you know, he was strapped to a wheelchair with a, a, a nurse, you know, with an arm's length all the time and, and for the most part, unable to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe I heard him say two words, you know, in all the time I was with him and, and, and that was maybe the first visit or the second visit uh, and with great effort. Um, though you could look in his eyes and know that he was mentally there, which was um, quite sobering mm-hmm. for somebody like myself who have such uh, reverence for his tremendous physicality as mm-hmm. a performer mm-hmm. and to understand that that, that amazing mind was there, um, but the body that would allow him to really access it and articulate it was not. So when you talk about him with the Surikin reverence, which you just did, what do you think about, as Richard Pryor, that you know, other than this one you remember as an early teen, what comes to mind? What are the parts that really trigger fond memories, shall we say, of his? Oh, um, I his mean, the work? fact, the fact that you know, we just talked about the concert film in '79 that we were referencing a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Just 
how much of his humanity he's willing to share. I mean, when it really comes down to it, you know, uh, that's the point of, of, of any artistic endeavor, I think. I, I don't really know that it's about so much about expressing something for oneself as opposed to uh, sharing it with others who might recognize themselves in your journey. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, he's so beautifully and, and with such tenderness and grace offered, you know, all of it. Um, and as we started this conversation, the fact that he could talk to any audience and people wouldn't get angry. You know, he could tell white people what they were like and tell well, there, black there people what they were like. There were people who would leave and you'd allow yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as, as right. far as, you know, you know people, you know, um, he was able to kind of reflect people back to themselves in a way that, that, that they found, you know, forgivable. Mm-hmm. Um, because as Dave started to say early on, you know, when we were young and, and we felt like, you know, he was talking about our collective experience um, and we could feel it and look in on it and own it without feeling indicted. Uh, which is an amazingly generous thing to offer somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you get to look into your soul and look at what you know, what is your part in this struggle uh, without me hanging it on you personally, right. just because you're the one, you're the cracker that's standing mm-hmm. in front of me. All right. And it's not only, I mean, that is what brought us to Richard Pryor, what, why we, what we first found so uh, irresistible about him. And the more we learned about him, I mean, you learn the ugly things and learn more of the, the sordid episodes and, mm-hmm. but but also just learn how much people around him really did love him i mean despite other things he did and just how protective they are of him and and just you know because the, i said you know he could, he could be like the sweetest person you've ever known and i and i think also just his artistic ability is just really um it's just something that i just find so overwhelming mm-hmm. when he did that and and what i also what we found out talking to people was uh that i didn't I wouldn't have assumed is just how hard he worked at it. You know, you think of somebody who uses drugs to that extent, who's yes. like, you know, involved in so many um, sexual relationships all the time, it sounds like. But other pe- people also talked about how he was just always watching people and always taking note and always working on the things. I mean, there were times when he, I don't think he worked much at all. But that those were kind of the exceptional times when he bottomed out maybe. But even when he was using so much, people would talk about how you'd go to the – Franklin Ajay, the comedian, mm-hmm. told us about going to the comedy store whenever Richard – he says, I didn't particularly like Richard as a person. I didn't think he had anything he could teach me about living or you know being a person. But he could teach me everything about being a stand-up comic that. because there was nobody else like him. He was – but he said he would go night after night when he was at the comedy store and was amazed at how – You'd see him develop a character over the point. You could tell he'd been working on it during the day and thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't just up there letting it fly. And that he did spend a lot of time, you know, writing, developing things. And, uh, you know, his ex-wife Jennifer Lee even talks about, you know, how when he was inspired, when he was ready to go, he just really pushed himself to make like that 1979 tour, 78, 79 tour that that live in concert movie comes from. It's interesting. You can hear recordings of different shows, and he's doing essentially the same material, but he's not doing it the same way every right, night. Right. But he's got it buttoned down. He really that. Yeah. You know, sometimes you think somebody that gifted, it must be natural. Hello. I just wanted to say hello. B.J. Griffiths, who's our I'm the music, music director. Oh, hello. Oh, I'm a huge fan. 
Oh, it's his. I know. <laughs> this is David and Joe. Right, here's fans. Yeah, Pleasure just to meet wait. You. Same here. Thank Good you luck so much, you guys. Thanks Thank a lot. Thanks, Gil. Okay. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Uh, he is a fan. I, he was. Uh, I used to do a, a show called Cinema Toast on another station, and he was the one of. He was my last DJ. I had seven. I was there for ten years, and um, he would. You know, he knows stuff, and he knows your stuff, and he knows your people, and would play them. So, yeah, that's very flattering. You know, yeah, it's always nice when you know you never get tired of hearing it. Loden Wainwright the Third was one of his favorites. No, he's a great yeah. one. Yeah. He's a great one. A great you friend. sing as well. You kind of uh, on some of those. I understand. I haven't heard. I'm trying to remember if I've heard you on uh, on, on Loudon different. Stuff? Yeah, I've produced Loudon. I thought you also were a backup or a no. No, he sang backup on a record or... of mine. Oh, okay. And we scored a film together. The film Knocked Up. Knocked Up. I scored with Loudon. That's cool. And mm-hmm. I don't think I sing on anything with him there. He sings. Uh, he is the the reoccurring backing vocalist on my own album uh, called Civilians because we were. You know, I was producing a couple records for him at that mm-hmm, moment, and mm-hmm. I'm a tremendous f- fan. And he's but you sang together friend. on the uh, Knocked Up, on the Strange Weirdos, the Knocked Up. Mm-mm. Didn't you sing at all on that? Didn't. Huh. Well, I don't usually allow myself to do that when I'm producing. <laughs> I, I would have loved to, but I just think you know, I don't want to lose my aerial view. Well, there's mm-hmm. an you know, interesting. You got to nice stay up in the lifeguard tower. Yeah, yeah let's can, do a segue. What does a music producer do? I tell you what, my my. Uh, I'm talking recording. Yeah. Yeah. Right. My friend and um, career-long mentor, T-Bone Burnett, I heard him on Terry Gross's show one day, and she asked him that when he was out promoting the film Crazy Heart that he worked on. Uh-huh. Um, she asked him, what does a music producer do? Because people don't know. And he said, oh, it's, you know, um, you, just listen really, you just listen really hard until it gets good. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which is... Well, sort of the, I mean, there's kind of two parts of the job. Uh, for me, the first part is being a really smart casting director mm-hmm. because most everything I produce happens live in a room with people. Not that we don't do overdubs, but we don't do very many of them. By it's live really about, in a room with people in contrast to what? Studio? I mean, like uh, people doing things piece at a time. Like, you oh, know, different tracks. Oh, let's have together, the bass player play to a loop yeah, and then we'll yeah. have the drummer replace that. And next week, the guitar player's coming in and we'll build this up out of pieces. Right. You know, we like to get people in a room. Like to hear the sound of people and the sound of open mic, open mics in a room describes the room sonically, mm-hmm. and people find a song by playing it together. You know, it's about discovery. It's not about having rehearsed it and then reading it into the public record that a microphone is. Mm-hmm. It's about discovery. And I think, you know, the first, second, third, sometimes the seventh take, but when a song stands up and announces itself, um, that's the moment that's most exciting and most musical to me. So. You got to tell me about working with Hugh Laurie. When I read your list mm-hmm. of things, I did not know he even had records. To be truthful, he's out touring his second one that we made uh, right now. Um, he is a prince of a man. He really is. Um, well, I've seen him try to get his trousers on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I first got that call, you know, because he's so known as an actor. I mean, that the moment that I first worked with him, he was his show was the most watched television show in the world. And my manager called me one morning, and the first thing he said on the phone was, listen, this is house. Yeah. Yes. He said, uh, listen, don't laugh. Um, you know this actor, Hugh Laurie? Because he just thinks I'm going to, like, you know, he's not a musician. He's an actor. Um, but, he's a, but he was a very dedicated musician and has been one longer than he's been an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he came to my house. You know, he was a big star. He didn't, he didn't ask me if I would come talk to him. He said, can I, can I come talk to you? He drove himself to my house right before getting on a red eye back to London that night. You know, I think I was with him 30 minutes, um, and I knew I was going to work with him, you know. And uh, he's become a really close friend. His wife, uh, his whole family has become close with us, and he's 
wildly intelligent, incredibly hardworking, um, and one of the funniest people I've ever been around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good to know. Yeah. I'll look for it. I would not be disappointed. It. I would not be disappointed. be something to, to search out. Yeah. Okay. And he loves New Orleans. He does love New Orleans music. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he plays the piano. He does, but I mean, yes. deep into into New Orleans blues tradition, really? not just piano tradition. You know, though he's you know he comes from you know long hair and um, you know Dr. John is sort of his his idol, his living idol. Mm-hmm. But he knows all the country blues stuff. You know, Blind Willie McTell and Lead Belly, and I mean, he's deep into all that music, very deeply right. steeped in it. Right. So you are the screenwriter brother. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to ask for your expertise, the two of you together. When they're putting together these Richard Pryor movies, because I'm a film critic, so I know him mostly yeah. from movies. Mm-hmm. Some TV you know, shows intermittently. But, uh, right. I don't think I've ever heard a concert record. I have seen the concert mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, can't, I remember my reaction to it, if I can recall my review at the time, was, oh, my gosh, where did this guy come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. The... When you're putting together, when you're producing a film or a screenplay into a film, because you did that, mm-hmm. working on that, right? I've done that. In, yes. But on much smaller budgets much than, smaller budget. than most well, things that's involved. Well, maybe that's the question. Mm-hmm. How do you make it the best you can with the budget you have? Well, I usually have the freedom to rewrite the script. Mm-hmm. Well, I say usually because I, I do a lot of also producing TV commercials. Because your director was the co-writer on the right, script. Right. Yes. Like on the, yeah, on this one, he's the co-writer. And we um, you know, get try to find people who really want to be invested in the, in the film and you know, give them a stake in it. I mean that's pretty much how we have to do it. There are people you have to pay up front because you have to pay technical people. I don't like to – you know, ask people for to work for nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't like to be mm-hmm. asked to work for nothing, even though I often am. Um, but usually, you get people who are, believe enough in the film or most or want to be in it enough that they're willing to risk some of their time for the back end money and not do it in the Hollywood net versus gross shell game, but you know that they get a producer's share. Right. So, I mean, that's the easy answer to that, and the people. Who are willing to do that are usually the people – have turned out to be the people who are who are right for it. Right, right. Yeah. It's probably like producing records in that regard. You know, I work on a lot of projects where, uh, um, you know, of course you'd like to have more of a budget to run wild with. Uh, you know, I rarely have worked on anything where anything resembling running wild happens as far as, you know, spending and traveling. Though it does happen, um, is yours more a time constraint than a money constraint? Well, uh, no, it's always. I mean, I mean, there's always a budget to wrangle, and I just sort of approach it this way. I just start from, from the beginning and say, you know, who needs to be in the room, and then what room are we going to be in? Mm-hmm. I need you to do the math and say, oh, that means we have to make this record in three days <laughs> as opposed to two weeks, um, because you're paying X amount per hour or whatever. Well, adding it you know, up. yeah, uh, for for musicians in a day, for recording engineer. Um, for catering, you know, for studio, yeah. or whatever that is. But to me, the most important thing is the personalities, is casting the room. And if I have the right people in the room and the songs are really good, um, you know, I'd rather make a record in three days than two weeks, always. You know, and I work with people who, who, who love that, who don't find that a hindrance, but who find that uh, a really uh, exciting um, challenge. If you were producing Richard Pryor, say 1974... What would you have him? What would you do with him? Uh, well, 
probably would have nailed the door shut for starters so that he couldn't leave until everything was in the can. <laughs> uh, that's probably all I would have done. I mean, sometimes, I mean, when, when I made the comment before about, you know, when T-Bone said you just listen, listen really hard until it gets good, right. you know, he wasn't being flip. I think no. Terry Gross thought he was. And I sat at home with my mouth, with my jaw open, just thinking, T, you just gave away the whole store. Now anybody can do it. <laughs> well, but, you know, it does you, take a certain well, year, but, shall we say. But yeah. you stand there as the, as, as, the, as, the, as the proxy for whatever audience might exist for this music. Uh-huh. You know, somebody has to stand there. That's why I say I never sing. I almost never sing or play on something that I'm producing. Because as soon as you put yourself in the picture, um, then you hear yourself and you see yourself and then you're self-conscious. Or you're evaluating, you know, how does this reflect on me as a musician? Um, but what I prefer to do and what I learned from T-Bone is that you stand there and, you know, somebody has to remain free enough to be moved. Mm-hmm. You know, like you guys are busy. We're doing a take and you guys have a job to do. And if you're doing yours, you can't always know, uh, you know, what he across the room was doing, whether that worked, you know, how it met in the air. Um, but somebody has to stand there and just say, look, I know that didn't go down the way anybody thought it was about to. But I'm going to tell you that it, 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 it hit me and we should listen. Um, somebody has to has to just be, you know, the reed in the wind mm-hmm. that 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 knows when you know music has happened. Let's talk about your book and creating your book, because uh, as as we talked about a little bit earlier, it started out with a film project that was going to be you know a two hour compilation of everything and kind of a there's Richard Pryor for you, mm-hmm. only casting you know with with other people playing the parts. Um. Which of you was the one who held the stopwatch? Which of you was the one who – how did you do this? Because you're in Louisville and you're in, still in New York, right? I live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. OK. Mm-hmm. Same diff. Mm-hmm. Far apart. And yeah, I know right. the internet's great and you mm-hmm. can step back and forth instantly and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and Peter Jackson can direct a movie from England. I have no idea <laughs> yeah. why he did, but he can. Yeah. You know, when yeah. it's being filmed uh-huh. in New Zealand. But, and uh-huh. it happens. But uh-huh. how did this you know, collaboration work out? Well, we did a lot of trading things back and forth, which I think um, it, it might sound like a hindrance, you know, being, you know, with, with the country standing between us. But I learned when I was ever co-writing with people that, you know, songs, I mean, that um, it was really difficult to sit in the same room with people and just, you know, we just, everybody just feels embarrassed all the time. You know, you got something, you know, you got anything? Mm-hmm. Or, you, you know, you offer a first line to a second verse and somebody goes, well, I mean, why would you start the second verse there? You go, well, I don't know. I'm writing it to find out. And as soon as you have to explain yourself, you're not in that creative moment anymore. But if you're free to just sort of give yourself over to it creatively and follow the thread, and then you come up for air, you know, you reflect on it. Or in this case, I would pass it along to David, and he would have a a very immediate and and visceral response to it. Mm -hmm. Um, He would change it. Then he would send it back to me. And we worked like that a lot. I mean – there were times, and he came to Los Angeles for maybe a, f- a few days, or uh, I went to Louisville for three or four days once. But a lot of it was just, you know, like, hey, I'm working on this, and and, and you'll be working on that, and then we'd trade it off. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'd work on a chapter, and he'd say, you know, I took that last thing you wrote, and I think that should, I think that should open the chapter, not close it. What happens if we invert the whole thing? What does that do? Ah. Or you know, that part that 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 had been at the ending of the book, you know. You know, what if that's much closer up front? You know, what if that's where we enter the stream? Um, that part of the collaboration was the most exciting to me when when I would do something and, and be unsure or a little bit lost in it. And and David, with again, with the aerial view that I described as a record producer, uh, it was like, hey, actually, you're not as far off as you think. Right. You know, try inverting that and see what that does. Um, 
I always found that exciting, you know, to get something back and see that it was still what I was working on. I still recognized my voice in it, but also knew that it had been that, that the light had been changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we understand each other pretty well, right? And always have, and especially on a subject like this, somebody we've been. Well, a biography has with. its constraints. Yes. I mean, I know A. Scott Berg, who I've known for a long time, you know, and he takes seven years on a book. Mm-hmm. I know his brother. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that's a working, you know, lifestyle that I wouldn't pick, but mm-hmm. it's, but, but it's you don't think for I, him. I think A. Scott Berg is, uh, uh, is, you know, feels very beholden to telling a story as a complete and as accurately, you know, building in the drama that he can. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he is he, he is dedicated to that being comprehensive and factual. Mm-hmm. Uh we're not really like that. In fact, too detailed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, we sort of own right up front that we're not trying to tell his definitive story. You know, um, we talk about this a lot. Where you know, I think you approach something like this, you got two choices. You know, you either take your lens and point it at, at your subject, or you use your subject as a lens and look at everything else. Right. Well, that's why which is what we try to do. Subtitled and the world that made it. Yeah, because we're mm-hmm. you know everybody at a point, most people have a sense of who they think he was. And what happened to him. Mm-hmm. But what was most fascinating to us, and I think remains so, is, yeah, but where did that come from? You know, right. he didn't just pull it out of a hat. Again, you know, to go back to Bob Dylan as a point of reference, you know, you can listen to Highway 61 and say, I hear Hank Williams. I hear Allen Ginsberg. I hear Robert Johnson. I hear Jimmy Reed. You know, but he's put him in a cocktail shaker, mm-hmm. shaken it up and strained it and served it as nobody has. Mm-hmm. How? Yeah. You know, what gave him that authority? What gave him that vision? And that's sort of, sort of how we approach Richard is he put these pieces together in a way that nobody ever had. Right. Um, what are these pieces and where did he find them? Of course, Dylan mm-hmm. says now that he's older, he says he doesn't know how he did it. I don't think he knew then. No. I'm sure he didn't. I mean, yeah, there's there's the mystery that happens when you mix the gin and vermouth and something happens that yeah. Yeah. isn't in either one of them. I mean, there's a, but, I yeah, mean you, uh, you know, the great writer Flannery O'Connor said that uh, the more she wrote, the more mysterious the whole process became to her. I found that to be true. I, I've gotten to live longer than she got to live. She died at 38, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know enough, I think I share enough uh, of Bob's method. I'm not trying to compare myself to Bob Dylan as a songwriter, but I'm saying I think I yes, you are. share it. <laughs> well, if this microphone wasn't here, I would. Absolutely. Um, but what I mean is that I share enough of, of his working sensibility that I'm pretty confident that he, had he thought he knew what he was doing. He couldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. He had to surrender and own the fact that he was working uh, out of the great mystery. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guests were the brothers music producer and filmmaker Joe and David Henry, talking about their biography, Furious Cool, Richard Pryor, and the World That Made Him. Our studio engineers for today's show were Mark Prell and Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to our next Word by Word Conversations with Writers show, which will air on KRCB-FM from 4 to 5, Sunday afternoon, February 2nd. Our guests will be offering literary tips for celebrating Valentine's Day. Until then, we invite you to include KRCB-FM as a continuing resolution in this new year.